en hartelike goeiemorgen, welkom by ons program Skriftierik, waar ons wekelijk saam na oplossing soek uit die skrifte, vervra waarmee gewone mense sikkel. Die Bijbel sê in Johannes 17, 17, die woord is waarheid, heilig hulle na die woord, en Psalm 119, 105 sê, die woord is een lamp vir my voete en een licht vir my pad. Kom dan saam met ons vir die volgende uur, wanneer ons geen steen onaangeraak laat, om die waarheid te vind en licht te skyn op die vraag uit die skrifte, waarmee ek en jy moendlik kan worstel nie. Krijg dus gauw jou bybel en kom onderzoek saam met ons die skrifte. Dis moes nou skrifteerlik. Our family is just getting bigger and bigger. Welcome to 657 AM. Yeah, welcome to 657 AM. A warm-hearted good morning wherever you are on God's earth for another hour to come. And uh, we'll have the privilege of uh, being together. Baie dankie dat jy ingeskakel is op hierdie program. En dis vir ons altyd een groot voorrecht om dan saam met jou in hierdie program te kan weer. Samt my in die atelier, the brother in Christ, Rocky Stevenson, since I've last seen you, my brother, how you keep this uh, almost Monday morning, this Tuesday morning. No, very well, thank you, Vainant, and uh, glad that it's a Tuesday morning, not a Monday. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. We, yeah, nothing blue about this day, and we honor the Lord for bringing here safely. So, skriftierlik werk so, jy stier jou vraag in op a WhatsApp, jy tik hulle uit, en jy stier dit vir ons in. Dis die enigste manier hoe ons vraag hanteer in hier die program. Die WhatsApp nommer waarin jy dit stier is 082-657-2729. Away to 6572729, just a sideline remark, kindly make reference to the scripture that, uh, that you're not certain about. So, uh, sit it for us daarby, en dan stuur die het vir ons dan 0826572729. Ek wil jou verseker, ek en Rocky het vanochtend gebid vir jou, vir jou deelname aan die program, vir jou luister na hierdie program, that God would get all the glory. And that's why we do what we do here. It's all for God's kingdom and for God's glory. So, as jy net luister vanochtend na die program, wil jy nie net bid vir ons hier in die atelier nie, dat die Heere ook vir Rocky sal inspireer dier die Heilige Gees, om boon natuurlijk sal herinner aan skrif wat hy met jou kan deel en bid ook vir ons luisteraars in hierdie program, dat het nie net by die een oor sal inwees en by die ander oor sal uitwees nie, maar dat mense sal luister en dan die woord sal gaan onderzoek om te kyk of hierdie dinge so is. Well, we start with a question that we had from a listener last week, Joanita Venter. Uh, jy het vir ons een vraag ingesteer, made reference to Ephesians 4 and verse 4, and you said the following, you said, I had it in a dream last night, Ephesians 4 and verse 4, and I dreamt it repeatedly. How do I understand these verses, and what does it mean in my life? Rocky kan ons wegspring met hierdie ene. See, we don't just skip questions, and uh, as promised, we're also busy recording programs for December. Questions that you've asked and need a bit more studying, burning the midnight candle, so to speak. So, Joanita, ons het jou nie oorgeslaan die Ephesians 4 vers 4. Rocky, wat sê ons vir Joanita? How do we answer this question? Yeah, firstly, that's a wonderful dream, you know, when you're dreaming of scripture and not something else. Wow. <laughs> it's a yeah. joy. But, um, so what a wonderful thing it is to have a passage of scripture that comes to mind while sleeping you know that's something to rejoice about and again i say rejoice like philippians 4 verse 4 
you know, you can rejoice that in your sleep you could even think on these things. And Psalm 1 verse 2 says that this about the blessed man, it says, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so a person that's thinking about the scriptures at night, that's wonderful. You can actually think of that. That contrasts something of the wicked. If you think of Psalm 36 where it says this about the wicked, transgression declares to the ungodly within his heart, there is no dread of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his eyes for one to discover his iniquity and hate it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to consider to do good. He devises wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on the path that is not good. He does not despise evil. And so to actually have God's word on your mind even at night is such a blessing um, compared to what is on the mind of the wicked. And so that's something to rejoice about. Now, to understand this passage is on the other part of the question. And any other passage within the scriptures, you would use the same kind of a principles. One of the principles would be that there is always only one meaning to any passage. There may be multiple um, there might may be multiple implications to that meaning. In other words, there may be many different applications, but there's only one meaning. And that is what God means it to mean. And so we need to, if we're looking at a passage, find out what does God mean about this passage. Just to illustrate that, something like thou shalt not steal always means thou shalt not steal, whether it's to Vainant or to Rocky or to any other Even in context or out of context, it's still the same. It's always thou shalt not steal. (laughs) But what is the application of that? Well, if we paid a certain wage for a certain amount of hours, are we giving the certain amount of hours that we were paid for? You know, are we putting the right information on our tax returns? What you know, you've got many different implications. You've got many different applications, but the meaning is always the same. And we have to let the one who authored the scriptures be the one who has the. We give him the place of praise, where we say, "You're the one that spoke this." So we ask you what you mean by this. You'll often know as a husband or wife. A husband will say, well, what did you mean by that? Or what the wife will generally say, what did you mean when you said this? And you let you give the integrity to the one who says something, the ability to actually explain what do they mean by what they say. So the communicator, the initial communicator gets that integrity to say, this is what I meant. And so when we go to a passage like this, we need to see what does God mean by this? And we've got to let God say this. So what does Ephesians 4 verse 4 say? It says there is one body. And one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of our calling. What does that verse mean? Well, it means what it says, but we need a little bit more than just that section. In that specific passage, we see that there's one body. What body is he speaking about? We need the rest. We, you know, you've got to look at the context to see what body is he speaking about. One spirit. What spirit is he speaking about? Do we see that in this verse in particular, or do we look around in the rest of the book of Ephesians? And so I would be saying, we need to go and see the rest of the book of Ephesians. See what the Apostle Paul was speaking about in that book. When did he write this book? He wrote it in language. What did the Greek words say? He wrote it at a specific time. What is the history of when he said this? What type of a writing is this? This is a genre of scripture, which is called epistle, letters. So you'd have all of this other knowledge that feeds some of the ways that you would understand what is he talking about. And then it says, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. But can that be understood by itself is the question. And my answer would be no. You've got to go and understand it in its context because you can't just take a few verses out or a few words out of the broader paragraph. You need to be able to understand we do this all the time, just in normal conversation. Yeah. You communicate via thought. 
Mm. And inside of your thought, you have a dominant of that thought, and you have a development of that thought. And a full thought is what we call a paragraph. So you have sentences that make up a paragraph, and that paragraph would make up a further passage. And God has done the same thing in the way in which he has... God has confined himself to speak to us via language. That is an awesome concept, to think that God himself would actually speak in a human language in order to be understood is amazing because God actually wants to be understood. That's yeah. why he gave us the Bible. The problem isn't with, the, with God's ability to communicate. The problem is often with us, with the inability to listen towards what God has said. We'll go to other things like a newspaper clipping or towards a letter that we got from our, parent, from our school uh, teacher at school of our kids, and we will interpret that a normal way. But then many times people come to the Bible and they start interpreting it with all bunch of crazy type of ways of thinking through God's word. We need to give God the integrity to let him say what he says in his word. And so a verse is in the Bible. It always has a broader context, which helps us to understand that verse. That broader context fits in a broader passage. That broader passage fits in a book. That book fits in a testament. That testament fits in the Bible. And so as we understand some of the dominant thoughts of God and we get to the smaller pieces of his development thoughts, so it comes that we're able to then understand a specific passage as we look at a passage like this. So my answer would be that Ephesians 4 verse 4 always means what God intended it to mean. If you come with a different meaning, well, then you're wrong. Then you actually just then you're wrong. And that's what the evil one would want us to do. Did God really say? Um, And so we need to, at the base and the level of the foundation, find what did God mean by this? And how we do that, part of how we do that at least, is to look at the broader section. So let's look at Ephesians 4 from verse 1 to 7. Therefore I, the prisoner of the, in the Lord, exhort you. Now we know from the rest of the book of Ephesians, this is Paul. He is writing from a prison cell. He's in his first Roman imprisonment. We piece this together with passages like the book of Acts. We can see where's Paul at this point. So he exhorts you. Who's he exhorting? Earlier on in Ephesians 1, he's speaking to the saints that are at Ephesus. He's speaking to Christians. So you have a context that fills in much of the information of what we even see in these verses. And he says, to walk worthy of the calling which with which you have been called. There's the major command of this passage. This is actually the dominant of this whole section. This is what this passage is really about. It's about a Christian walking worthy of the calling that God has given to them. And then that is, that's really the what. What are you to do? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you called. The how is found in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, why? Then we ask the question, why are we, why are we to do this? Well, firstly, because we are one, because of oneness. There is one body, there is one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of our calling, our one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And not just because of our oneness, but because of our uniqueness that we call to this, and that's verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So now as we look at the broader context of this verse, we start to see what does this verse mean. So what is God telling the Christian to do in this passage? What is God's meaning of this passage? Firstly, you are exhorted to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. You're to be a Christian. Basically, he says what in verse 1, it's, 
you need to know what this calling is. You go and look at what, you know, Ephesians 1 to 3 teaches yeah, yeah. because God lays this out for us in the rest of the book of Ephesians. He's not talking about a new concept here in chapter 4. He's already established this. And it's amazing. Actually, the book of Ephesians is wonderful. There's very much the theology given of the Christian life in, in chapter 1 to 3. And then there's the how do you live this out from chapter 4 to chapter 6. So that's a marvelous way that Paul has actually written a book like Ephesians. From chapter 4, you start to see the practical outworkings of this theology that you have uh, developed in chapter 1 to 3. But then secondly, not just are you commanded here to and exhorted to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, you're then in verse 2 to 3, you're told how you are to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. Paul doesn't leave us guessing how does this look. He gives us five ways that you are to walk worthy of the calling of God. He says, with all humility. So now you know, okay, I need to be humble if I'm going to walk this way. With all gentleness. Oh, I need to be gentle with this. Oh, with all patience. That's the third way you to walk this way. Then you are to be bearing with one another in love. There's the fourth way. And the fifth way, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And it would seem that he then expounds a little bit on this being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he's speaking about these Christians being Christian in the context of the local church because he's speaking to these Christians at Ephesus. And so you can see there's very much a recipe here for the Christian of how to live their Christian life out with other Christians. Walk in a manner worthy. How do you do this? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Isn't that something we need in our churches today? We need this desperately, don't we? Being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then thirdly, you're told why you should walk worthy of your calling. And this is where the verse of our listener comes in, in verse 4. It's part of the section of why you should walk worthy of this calling. And so if you want to know what you're reading, you see it in the broader context, and you get to see verse 4 to 6 is actually part of a bigger thought that is teaching me why. Actually, verse 4 to 7 is the why of the how of the what. The what is walk in a manner worthy. The how you do that, Humility, gentleness, patience with each other, and then the the bond of peace, etc. And then verse 4 to 6 tells us because of oneness. Why should we do this? Why should you and I, as a saved Christian, live in a manner worthy of the calling that we have? And it can clearly be seen in the context of with one another. Well, because there's one body. We're part of one body. And there's one spirit. And you have one hope of your calling. And there's one Lord. And there's one faith, and there's one baptism, and there's one God and Father of all. So the oneness of the Christian existence is awesome. And so therefore, you ought to walk in a manner worthy, and how you should do that. And then verse 7 tells us because of your uniqueness. So that's quite amazing that verse 7 comes in and gives us balance, because this is one of the reasons we're not all the same, but we're all one within the body of Christ. We all are different body parts. And verse 7 says, because of your uniqueness. But each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So he's saying, you're all one, but you're different. And therefore, you must walk in a manner worthy. And this is how you walk in a manner worthy. So are you starting to see what God's saying to the Christian in this passage? Yeah. He doesn't change what he's saying. Just because we dreamt about it last night. If we dreamt about it last night, we go and study the passage. Praise God if he brings that to mind. Then what is he saying to you? He is saying the same thing to you as what he did to the original audience at Ephesus when this passage was first penned by the Apostle Paul. He says the same thing to Benoni Bible Church. Benoni Bible Church today needs to walk in a manner worthy. How should they do that with those five things? Why should they do that? Because of those two reasons. 
So this is the same truth, but we can apply it in different ways, but it's the same truth. The Christian is called to be a Christian and to live out their lives in the light of the marvelous calling which God has had upon them. Ephesians 1 to 3, if you wish. That the Christian would know how this looks and then why they should do this because they are collectively one and they are individually unique. So, are you part of a local body like the Christians were at Ephesus? Well, then he's speaking to you as a Christian. Be a Christian. Are you living out your Christianity with one another? There's the next challenge of the section there in the passage. And are you walking in a manner worthy of the marvelous calling that Christ has called you towards? Are you humble or are you proud? Are you gentle or are you harsh? Are you impatient or are you patient? Are you bearing with one another in love? Or are you actually just be- just wanting to get out of the presence of one another? Because you actually don't really love one another. There's no such thing biblically even, as a solo Christian or a Christian who's not part of a local body or who has nothing to do with any other Christians. They actually tried that at one stage called mono, um, mono, they did the monasteries. Yeah. And at one point there was one monk who got himself up on a pole and he was all by himself on this pole. And the people even started to worship some of the, the dung that he would My send God. down yeah. this down there. And then he would get angry even while he was up there. Eventually he came down and he, he realized the problem isn't that I need to be separated from everybody else. The problem's actually within. The problem's yeah. not with everybody. The problem's in me. I'm yeah. a sinner. And he came to a place of humility in the end of that. But do you realize that your identity, your identity as, as a part of the body of Christ is not just alone, but it's part of this broader body. And being a Christian is to be a Christian within the context of that broader body and doing it to the honor and the glory of God. And that affects the way that you walk the way that you talk, the way that you think, the way that you are. And that's what Paul is, 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 is on about here in Ephesians chapter 4. Are you living out your unique calling is the next question that you have. Is Are you doing what God specifically made you to do inside of that body? But making you a specific way to live out a specific thing inside of that body of believers is never ever against that oneness. And it's never ever against what we see in these verses. And it always is walking in a manner that is worthy. So that is the passage, or that is the short answer to that question as we look at this. When we look at a verse, we want to see it in its context, and we want to let God be the one who determines what it actually means. And then we need to work a bit at understanding it and going studying it. Uh, I guess for those that are listening, what what would be a good tool as well is to get your hands on a very good study Bible, for yeah, example. That's yeah. often very helpful. Don't let that be, make you lazy because you don't need the study Bible to understand the Word of God. You need the Spirit of God. So you firstly need to be born again if you're going to actually understand God's Word, which means you need to recognize you're a sinner, that you need a Savior, that Jesus is the Savior, and Jesus must become your Savior. And you must repent of any self-righteousness that makes you think that you can get in because of your own person or your own works. You need Jesus, his person, his works. And if you are born again, then you have the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God then teaches the man in his heart as he even opens the Word of God. But there's some serious sweat that this is called for. You need to actually go and look. And you need to study. And you need to ask questions. And you need to work hard at this. You must study to show yourself approved of God. As Paul even spoke to Timothy and said, do this. Be a good workman. Be somebody that's not going to be ashamed one day for the way that you handle God's Word. Right, uh, Joanita Venter, baie dankie ook uh, vir daai jene wat jy vir ons ingestuur het. Rocky, you can see there on the WhatsApp screen, just there, uh, somebody that said, uh, I dreamt on Psalms 18 and verse 2. I, in fact, was just paging there 
uh, en hy het vir my gesê, ek het u hartelijk lief, jere, my sterkte. This person dreamt on these words for two days, and then just the word lamentation. Klaagliedere, nee? Klaagliedere. So, uh, just a, a, a remark that somebody had made there. So, Jonita Baie, thank you, and Rocky, thank you so much for deconstructing that scripture and the who, the where, the why, the what uh, that we have. Yes, we're going to talk about scripture, tot en met 12 uur vandag, samen met die atelier, pastor Rocky Stevenson. En baie dankie, ek wil net gaan kyk hier, a luisteraar met naam van Heilet, wat sê, thank you pastors for an amazing program. I hang on to every word you say, and then uh, posing uh, own question there, I'm wondering if it's biblical to pray the blood of Jesus over people, over your house, over your car, over protection. We'll get to that one in a moment or so. Christine, I've seen your question What does it mean to resist the devil and he will free? We'll tackle that in a moment. But then again, I'd like to go to our next listener and uh, Elinda Eland. Elinda Eland wat vir ons hierige vraag gevraagd and she quotes from the book of Matthew 27 and verse 51b The earth shook, the rocks split apart in verse 52, the graves opened and many of God's people who died were raised to life. Verse 53, they left the grave and to make a long a question short, she says, um, who are these people? Can you do that for us, Dalk? Rocky, do we have an uh, answer for Elinda? Do we know, does the Bible tell us who are these people who left the graves, who were once dead and now are walking around, uh, also according to the book of John? Do we have an answer for her? Yeah, we, um, we, we do see one, one of the parts of the, of the question that I, that I thought through as I looked at this question, because this was also a question that came through. Um, part of what Alinda said at the end, she said that there's many churches don't actually talk about this. They don't talk about this historical happenings. And um, and I would just say that there are churches that do speak about this when you come to that passage, when you are exegeting that specific passage. And I would be a strong advocate for what we call true exposition of God's word. That means that you ought to take it verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, that you should go from chapter 1 all the way through that book, and many pastors have preached through Matthew and Matthew's gospel and would have done that. And um, if you're looking for a, a sermon to go and listen to regarding some of what was touched on in that question, I preached one about two weeks back, three weeks back, on First Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 18. And I actually touched on that very same passage in Matthew, and in, in Matthew when I was speaking about um, the dead in Christ. And the, the, the title of that sermon was... Hopeful Grieving, and you can go find that on Benoni Bible Church's uh, YouTube channel if you want to go and look at Hopeful Grieving and what it means for the dead in Christ to rise, and I touched on that on that passage quite a bit in that sermon, and, and other churches deal with that when they come to the end of the book of Matthew, but the information that we have in this passage tells us itself who these people are, what well, it tells us that they were people, they were God's people, they were people that had died in God and believing in God, so they were believers. They were Old Testament saints, as it were. They believed that the Christ was coming, and these are people that then raised from the grave. There was something of a preview look of what it would be like when Christ returns, and we have the dead in Christ that rise. Did Jesus go with them was part of the question. We don't see that in this verse. No. And Jesus is still also not 
um, in his in his personhood as God and man, what we call the hypostatic union, yeah. he's 100% God, he's 100% man. And even as he resurrected on the third day from the grave, Jesus is still in one place at one time. He's not everywhere eating, at once. The, eating, eating the fish. Yeah, the, Thomas could put his fingers exactly. into the wounds. And, yeah, so the Spirit yeah. of God is everywhere at once. So God is still omnipresent. He's still everywhere at once. But in the person of Christ, yeah. in the sense of him, the second person of the Holy Trinity, he's only in one place at one time. And we get told where Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. And we can piece together some of what Jesus was doing at the end parts of of the Gospels, and he was with his disciples for 40 days right. before ascending on high at the Mount of Olives. And then 10 days later, you have Pentecost, where the Spirit of God comes and falls upon yeah. the church in Acts chapter 2. But so the information in the verse we need to stick to, the, the question was also, was John with them? Well, we don't know. We, we're not told, but surely that would be quite a big thing to happen if John the Baptist rose from the dead. Yeah. I think that maybe uh, Matthew would have told us that John the Baptist rose. We're not told that. So we can't go further than what the scriptures tell us. We're just simply told these were God's people. They actually came in. They witnessed to many people in the holy city of Jerusalem about Jesus. Um, I, I wonder to myself, and this is a further wondering, you do have John seeing a vision of like 24 elders that were with him. And we know that when we are absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. These bodies are buried or they burned or they cremated or yeah. they fall into the sea or etc. And we also know that at the coming of the Lord in the rapture, that's what First Thessalonians teaches us. First Thessalonians 4, and he tells him, I don't want you to be unawares of these things, brothers. I want you to comfort one another with these things. And he goes even into the second coming, some of the tribulation period in First Thessalonians chapter 5, which I've been preaching on recently at uh, Benoni Bible Church. But he, he says, I don't want you to be unaware of these things. You must comfort one another about these things. We will always be with Christ. And he talks about those that are the dead in Christ, which he uses the terminology of those that are asleep. The body is asleep, but those that are with him are present with the Lord, and they receive their resurrected bodies. As, and as the church is raptured, at that moment where Christ is coming and receiving his church, the dead in Christ rise. And yeah. so we see that happening at the rapture, and they precede those that now go up in the air to be with Christ in the air. And we will all, all those that are believing in him, all of us will be with him like him and with him always so what we see at the moment is we've got those that are with him now that have departed from their bodies but their bodies will also rise like what we see at the end of matthew in his gospel so the question that i have then with regards to this story here um and 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 do we have any because what makes this whole th event supernatural rocky is the fact that the dead in christ uh rose on that day. Do you think it was in a glorified body that these, in, in, a, in a sort of a, or was it the same like Christ that you could touch them, hug them, uh, their loved ones now glad they, they back from there. And, and then again, we understand that after three days of death, I mean, there's crazy stuff happening to the body in the grave. Uh, there's no indication of how long these people were dead and, and what sort of yeah. bodies they were risen in. Well, this is, this is it because God has made man from the dust. So God can then put man back together again. And I, I do see these as glorified bodies like the Lord Jesus. It does seem that his body wasn't under the same kind of restraints as what his disciples were because you'll remember that he would appear with them and there were doors that were locked and so yes. he could even kind of go through walls as such or teleport, or I don't know yeah. how exactly that was working out. But I, I would believe that these were glorified bodies and that they actually rose physically 
and that they were given bodies like our Lord Jesus. And so you do wonder, I wonder to myself if the 24 elders that are with Jesus in John's yeah. vision were some of these people, you know, some of these people that actually received their glorified bodies. But we know that there's many souls waiting for that day of redemption, yeah. like what um, Romans chapter 8 speaks about regarding all creation groans for the day of redemption. And we ourselves too, inwardly, we groan for the day of of redemption. And yeah. I think that that is part of what we're looking forward to. And during that seven year tribulation on the earth, the people of God are enjoying, they have the beamer seat of Christ and then they have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're with Jesus. He even says, I long to eat the supper with you again and I'll do it once we're in our kingdom. Yeah. When the end of this church age happens. And so we do see something of a preview of that at the end of the book of Matthew. All right. So we think in a sort of a materialistic sense uh, about this because ultimately you would then think, you know, do these people have to die again or did they just disappear out of the scene? After this whole uh, uh, thing that happened there in Jerusalem, and the, uh, we can only speculate. The Bible yes. doesn't give us any idea. Yeah, we, we, we can only go as far as what the Scriptures teach us regarding this there. I do wonder as well what, what would happen with this. I don't believe they would die again. I think they would have likely been taken to heaven. It talks about the people seeing them, but it doesn't say that they started to dwell with them or they started to live with them or All they right. went back to their family members and then yeah, you know took up, took up residency again and bought <laughs> yeah. some new property, etc. Yeah. So it just talks about them visiting people. So there was All this right. visitation from these people that had that were godly people that were raised, not like wow. zombies or like, you know, something too strange that uh, brought terror to Jerusalem. But it is something that speaks of the kingliness of Christ. And that's, that's where it also helps maybe on our earlier question regarding the context of Ephesians 4 verse 4. You want to look at the broader context of the book. And the book of Matthew shows Jesus as the king as the victorious king and you get to see who jesus is in that way and he's he's the king of the jews and that's why that that plaque was even put above his head and you can see the effect of even his death brought about earthquakes and and such huge shifts in the world and yeah. darkness and yeah. then the temple um you know the the, the crack in the temple and the tearing of the, veil. the tearing of the veil and you have <clears throat> the dead now rising and so you have this magnificent event that marks the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And everybody and you get, knew. And you get something of a preview as well of what it will be like when we read about passages like First Thessalonians chapter 4. All right. Okay, the uh, telephone number in studio, if you want to send uh, your own WhatsApp, you can do so, 0826572729. Ikasa says we have to take a music break. We're going to take a uh, a quick music break, a love revelation, they call themselves, a song called Heaven's Anthem. And when we come back, we'll take some more of your WhatsApp uh, questions. Bye, thank you for hearing the with Deal Neum and program. Trusted you find it as fascinating as I do and uh, presenting it to you this morning and indeed a privilege for Rocky and myself to be in your company. So don't throw go away. We'll be back with some more scripture right after this. Yeah, lots of things happening here in stereo. Skriftelik is waar jy ingeskakel is en hartelike goeiemorgen baie welkom tackling the word of the Lord. Yeah, and uh, seeing what the highest authority known unto mankind mean with the things that we struggle with on a daily basis. Chris, thank you for us a vraag ingestuur. Goeiedag, kan jylle vir my asjeblief verduidelik resist the devil and he will flee. Can we start with that one uh, that we received? Rocky, what are we to understand with that one? Resist the devil and he will flee. What does the scripture say? Yeah, and um, this is James chapter 4, verse 7. 
And it is in a broader section where James is actually speaking to the, the, the people while he's writing to the dispersion of those that were Christians that had gone around to the known world. And he's speaking about not being presumptuous with God in that broader section. He says, do you suppose it to no purpose that the scripture says ye yearns jealously over the spirit that he makes to dwell in us? And then verse 6, he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then verse 7 says, submit yourself, therefore, to God. And right after this, it says, resist the devil. So you do want to look at this in the broader context and realize that this is not something that we're, there's not a charge here to actually go and like find the devil so you can resist him. You're supposed to be somebody that just simply submits yourself before God. In that, you will resist the devil and he will flee from you. So you're never told to go and in a sense, march against the devil, you're going to be attacked by the devil as a Christian at times, or, or by not necessarily just the, the devil, maybe a demon, but a, a evil force as such, because he sets himself against the church of Christ. But remember this about the devil, and we have a lot of misunderstandings regarding the devil. He again himself is somebody that is a created being who is only in one place at one time at any given moment. So when we speak of the devil, we speak of somebody who is a person in a specific place. He's a fallen angel. He used to be the angel of light, but he has a network of demons that he does also use for his own evil purposes. So when we speak about the devil in this context, it isn't a broader context, but he's only personally in one place at one time. But when this attack comes, you resist. But what do you do before that? Verse 7, submit yourself therefore to God. How do you submit to God? Well, you listen to God's word. You obey God. You do what God tells you to do, and then you resist the devil, he will flee from you. And then verse 8 is important as well, right after this, because it says this, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So you got this played up against one another. The devil is that you're resisting, and he flees, but God who you draw near to, and then God draws near to you. So this is the marvelous reality of a passage like this. And he continues, he says this, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So this is part of the closing remarks, actually, of the book of James, that, that James is busy giving. And James was the pastor of the first church at Jerusalem. This is the half-brother of Jesus. And so he was somebody that at one stage didn't even believe in Jesus. But later on, because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the grave, comes to believe in Jesus. And church history tells us that James was actually thrown off of the Temple Mount by Jews that were very upset about the preaching that James was doing. He landed on the ground at the bottom of the temple. This is just a side note. And um, they say that he kept on preaching to those that were wow. at the bottom. And uh, he'd broken all of the bones probably in his legs, etc. And those that were on the roof got so upset that to run all the way down and then they stoned him to death at the end. And so this is the way that, that James, uh, church history tells us that James died. But the point being here that you resist the devil in a way of submitting first to the Lord and making sure that you draw near to the Lord. We're not called to be something like demon hunters or to go out and look for the devil. He seeks one to devour and we, we just stay ranks. We stay in the shield wall and we we have a defensive offensive. That's the Christian walk. And that, that the reason I'm using those terms of of a Roman soldier is because yeah. of something like Ephesians chapter 6, yeah. where Paul says this, finally, and this is from verse 10 of Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
So what are we told about here? We're told about how to resist. We put on the whole armor of God. Are you armored, or do you think that you're lying on a beach somewhere sun tanning? We're actually yeah. in a war. That's what we are a life as Christians. And death, a life and it's death, a life and death battle. Struggle, yeah. And there's, there's schemes. You have a schemer who actually wants to destroy you. He is busy strategizing. I think that's the actual Greek word there, strategunum, yeah. which is he's making the strategy. I can actually probably even uh, check if that was what the, the word was for this. All right. Um, okay. It's a dear. It's not strategunum. It would have been good if it was. But it is the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So this is what it means to resist the devil. It's simply standing. Stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of the truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness that is given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So how do you resist? You have the shield of faith, and you hold up the shield of faith. The flaming darts are coming, but you're taking that on. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And he has a massive point to this standing firm and this resisting. And it's verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 6. Praying at all time in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Why do we put on this armor? The Christian is strongest on his knees in prayer. This is how you resist the devil. You pray. And you have the full armor on. In prayer, you put on all this armor and you get on your knees to your heavenly father and you ask God, please help. And you resist the devil. You stand firm. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I want to take you to the book of Jude right before Revelation, the very last uh, short uh, letter, the book of Jude, Judas, verse 9. Because sometimes we make a, 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 a lot of fuss about Satan, and that said on verse 9, but when Michael, the arts engel, with the devil in the woordestrijd was, over the lichaam of Moses, had he no oordeel van laster durf uitspreek nie. Um, sometimes we, that's another way of resisting the devil. We shouldn't worry about that because we've read the last page. God had conquered him and, and sorted him out. But there are a lot of people that's very outspoken about the evil one. And, and literally, you know, when it comes to the word of God, but it's this almost a pitching of the good and the bad. You know, who's winning today? Is it God that's winning today or is it the devil who's winning today? Uh, does that scripture apply as well that we should steer clear from, from bad-mouthing the evil one as well? How no, do you understand? I mean, uh, what we need to understand about the devil is he's still God's devil. Yeah. He can't do anything apart from God giving him permission. That's the book of Job. Love the way you and say it. Yeah. So, so God still achieves his glory through even somebody as hateful as the devil. The devil tries all that he can to attack God, to attack God's sheep, to attack. He does everything he can, and yet he still gives even more glory to God. Not that he personally is trying to give glory to God. He hates God. He hates God's people. But he's still God's devil. He can't do anything without God giving him him the permission to do it. Yet we still are called to pray and say, God, deliver me from the evil one. And that's part of even the Lord's prayer. And as we think through that is that we need that deliverance from God the Father. 
One yeah. of the ways in which we are to stand, the greatest way in which we are to resist the devil, is by prayer. All right. Okay. Somebody once said, seven days without prayer makes one week. Keep that in mind. <laughs> All right. So from Christine's question, resist the devil, to Katie's question. In our Father prayer, it says, lead us not into temptation. Uh, can you please explain how are we to understand that? Because there's also a scripture that says God doesn't tempt man. It, it comes from our own sinful nature and it leads us to the abyss. How are we to understand this particular scripture that says lead us not into temptation? Jesus taught us to pray, pray that way. He uh, did. And it's actually fascinating that we get that question now right after what we've just looked at. Because yeah. the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6 from verse 9 says this. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. And right after this, there's a but. And it speaks about the evil one who we're yeah. supposed to be resisting. Remember right. from the last yes. question. Mm-hmm. But deliver us from the evil one. So what is the context of this lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one? It's actually in the context of a demonic or satanic or evil attack on the person, on the believer. All right. Because he's saying lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So who's the one that is attributed this temptation to in a section like the Lord's Prayer? It's actually the evil one. And part of what we're praying for is have deliverance from this so that we are not like Eve who gives in to the tempter because that's what he did with Eve. He has this and he says, did God really say that you should not have of this? And Eve says, no, but God said we shouldn't eat this, but we should also not touch this. Yeah. And he says, oh, you shall not surely die is what he says to Eve. And she falls into temptation. So part of what we've seen that is given by our Lord in the Lord's prayer is not to have that temptation, but rather to be delivered from the evil one. We're saying, God, please would you be merciful? You're the one that is in sovereign control, even over Satan. Won't you please keep me from falling into his hands? He wants to. He seeks one to devour. He's a roaring lion. He's a defeated foe. But he wants to destroy us. He wants to take our joy. He wants to take our hope. He wants to take our peace. Won't you please, Father, be so merciful as to keep us from this? And then to think about this, that we we don't see much of this happening, you know, physically with our eyes. But the devil is very active in our world. He's deceiving the nations. He's continuing to work in the government forces of our world even. There's the kings of the world. They rage and they plot in vain against the Son of God. We as the church, we're going about as sheep to the slaughter in many respects. We go about as a, a people that are ambassadors for Christ. And we're in a world that is hostile towards us. Jesus said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. And if Satan attacked Jesus, surely he's going to attack Jesus' church. And he does do that. And so the church of God, in humility, comes before the Father and says, we don't stand in our own strength. We stand in your strength. We need your help, Lord. Please, please, would you help us? Would you deliver us? Would you keep us from temptation? And would you deliver us from evil? And again, James 1.13, it talks about um, how... The temptation comes from within us, too. So we have three grand enemies, and maybe that would be helpful for the listener. We have the enemy of the evil one, who's the great enemy, Satan, and his demonic hordes. And then we've got the enemy of the world. He who is friends of the world is not a friend of Christ. That's what John says in 1 John. And so the world is an enemy to the Christian as well, and the influences of the world. And we should not have the love of the world or the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. 
the world is a great a great enemy of the Christian. But then we also have the greatest enemy of them all is the enemy of self. Mm. And we are told about that in the book of James, that we are tempted when we are lured away and enticed by our own evil desires. Mm. You know, so when we think of our narcissism or hedonism or materialism, there's that the inner man, the man that's after Adam, instead of the man that's after Christ, that old man. You, When you're born again, you're one man with two natures. You have the old nature, but you also have the new nature after Christ. And that's why Paul tells us to put to death the old man. And we must renew the spirit of our mind and live in the new man, Christ. And so we must live out Christ. And so you've got to recognize as well that part of this deliverance that we need from God is also a deliverance from self. Please would you help me to be delivered from myself. Right, uh, you cannot believe it uh, when Rocky sent me a WhatsApp this morning. He says, looking forward to the shortest hour of my life this week. Well, that's where you find yourself, my brother. It is done and dusted. We have to uh, leave you, love and leave you. And thank you so much for all the questions. Hey, let us gaan kijk of ons volgende keer by jou vraag kan uitkom. Is it biblical to pray the blood of Jesus over people, over your house, over your car for protection? Does the Ten Commandments still apply in this modern day and age that we find ourselves in, in Klomfra, Diane Banks, what weer a vraag gevraad oor wat kan vrou gekry? That one we've dealt with plenty and plenty of times here on this radio station. Jacqueline, thank you for your remarks. Um, just in closing, uh, Rocky, if somebody wants to write you an email, where can they get hold of you, please? At Rocky, uh, sorry. That's pastor. Pastor. Pastor at, <laughs> <laughs> at BenoniBibleChurch.co.za. All right, and ample people at Seeds the Opportunity and make use of that. If you want to be in touch with Pastor Rocky, you can uh, send them email pastor at uh, benonibiblechurch.co.za. My brother, have a safe journey back to Benoni. Bless your heart. Thank you so much. Next week, God willing, if the Lord tarries, we'll be back with some more uh, piercing questions and searching the Scriptures. I'd like to end with these words. It's good to listen to Pastor Rocky, Vainant, and Radio Pulpit, but ultimately the Word of God says, to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Acts seventeen eleven. Till next time, keep well. God bless you and shalom. Yes, Lionel Peterson taking us to the twelve o'clock news. Show me your glory. Till next time, keep well.